Bibles with me, Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 3, and uh, we are continuing in the book of Genesis. Any uh, of you used to watch the old Twilight Zone? Oh yeah, okay. Well, in one of the classic episodes called The Howling Man, an American on a walking trip is making his way through Central Europe and he finds himself caught in a violent storm. As the rain pounds down, he finds himself blindly stumbling up to this imposing medieval castle. It's a hermitage for monks, and they don't seem too happy to have this stranger come to their castle. Well, later in the night, the American explores the castle and discovers a cell with a man locked inside. There's this ancient wooden rod that is bolting the door, and the prisoner pleads for his help. He claims that he's being held captive by this insane monk, Brother Jerome. He begs for release. As the American continues to dialogue with him, the prisoner speaks with a gentle tone. He seems normal enough, and through this steady drumbeat of pleas the American has won over, he confronts Brother Jerome, who declares that the prisoner is actually Satan, the father of lies. Being held captive by the staff of truth, the one barrier that he would not be able to cross. Well, the claim appears ludicrous. Who would believe such a thing? Indignant, the American sneaks down to the forbidden cell and he releases the prisoner. Who immediately transforms into a hideous horned demon and vanishes in a poof of smoke. The stunned American is Horrified at the realization of what he has done, Jerome responds sympathetically, I'm sorry for you, my son. All your life you will remember this night and whom you've released upon the world. I didn't believe you, the American replied. I saw him. I didn't recognize him. To which Jerome solemnly observes, that is man's weakness and Satan's strength. Author Cornelius Platinga Jr. notes that Satan must appeal to our God-given appetites for goodness in order to win his way. To prevail, evil must leech not only power and intelligence from goodness, but also its credibility. From counterfeit money to phony airliner parts to the trustworthy look on the face of the con artist, evil appears in disguise. Hence, its treacherousness. Hence, the need for the Holy Spirit's gift of discernment. Hence, the sheer difficulty at times of distinguishing between what is good and what is evil. Well, we have finally made our way here to Genesis chapter 3. And we come to the passage that explains the theme of this series, Unglued. It all begins with a seemingly innocent conversation. But the implications of this story are far-reaching. This one day in human history would start a cascade of consequences that would touch every part of human society. Indeed, I would say every corner of the universe. One conversation. One small deception. One man's choice. One seemingly insignificant act of disobedience would be the snowflake that would start the avalanche would be the dissolving agent that would break down the glue of God's perfect creation. And it's also a story that the wise would do well to not relegate to the realm of mythology or fable. 
You see, Satan, temptation, sin, and the consequences that come from these things are just as much a a real aspect of your life as they were to Adam and Eve's life. The question before us is, how does temptation work? How did the tempter convince Adam and Eve to destroy their relationship with God? And, And how does he do the same thing to you and to me? Well, as we look this morning at how everything became unglued, we're also going to take a couple of lessons to know who our enemy is and to understand his strategy. So let's start there. Let's know the enemy a little bit. Look with me at just verse 1. It tells us this. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field in the Lord, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? There was a first grader who was sitting in his classroom as the teacher was reading to the class, and she was reading the story of the three little pigs. And as she got along in the story, she came to the part where the first pig was trying to buy building materials for his construction of his home. And so he approaches uh, one of the merchants, and he's wheeling along hay, and the pig comes up and says, how much to buy this hay? Now, the teacher stops in the story and says, and what do you think the man said to the pig? Well, one little boy, the first grader, got super enthusiastic. He raised his hand and said, I know, I know. He said, holy smokes, a talking pig. (laughs) Now, you wonder why Eve doesn't say the same thing here. I mean, goodness gracious, a talking snake. Although we are not given much information about this snake, we have other testimony from the scriptures that tell us that this snake is indeed Satan. The Hebrew Old Testament calls this ancient enemy Satan. It means adversary, persecutor, accuser. The New Testament calls him Diabolus, which is where we get that term devil. Revelation 12.9 makes clear that this snake is Satan himself. The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so we see this full uh, bloom of this character Satan in the Bible. He begins as a snake, but then as he gets drunk on power and pursuing uh, the, the antithesis of the things of God, he grows into this giant dragon at the end of time. He's an enemy that we should not take lightly, an enemy that we should know about, an enemy that we should be aware of, and what are his purposes. Well, one thing we know of this enemy is that his plan is nothing short of usurping God. Well, the Bible does not tell us much about Satan's origin. There is a passage in Isaiah chapter 14. And as uh, you're reading this, it sounds like a, a prophecy to the king of Babylon, but it seems like there's this puppet master behind him, this, this figure that's a little more cosmic in scale than this king here. Listen to the text, Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You have been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. If Satan is the enemy of God, then he hates anything that God views as good. 
What have we seen so far that God views as good? Well, everything he's made. He created over the course of six days and he just keeps saying, this is good, good, good. He makes Adam and Eve, male and female, in his own image. And he calls them very good. Remember, we saw that loneliness, Adam being alone, is not good. So we can say, uh, derive by implication then that Satan would view uh, marriage, or that God would view marriage as being good, right? So what does Satan hate? Well, Satan hates this world. He hates image bearers, which means he hates you. He hates marriage. He hates the stability that strong relationships in society would bring. But above all, he hates when you come to know God through Jesus. Here's another purpose that we learn of Satan. Satan hates you, and he has a terrible plan for your life. His plan for your life is the antithesis of God's plan. Remember, God has your best interest in mind. He is not in the business of human stifling. He is in the business of human flourishing set within the parameter of his good laws in the context of a covenant. But Satan has your worst interests in mind. And he is working toward human misery, human suffering, and ultimately damnation in this world. How do you pacify an enemy like that? I mean, can you strike up some kind of casual alliance with him? You kind of stay over there. I'll stay over here. Uh, maybe I'll just kind of lightly dabble in this God thing. I'm not going to fully invest in it, so you don't need to worry about me. I don't need to be on your radar. How does that turn out? What does history tell us? Well, when Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain returned to London on September 30th, 1938, he came with a peace pact signed by the Nazi leader Adolf Hitler. He had received a boisterous homecoming unlike any previously given to a British leader. The clouds of war had been building over the European continent. Just a generation ago, the people of Britain had lived through the consequences of World War I, and there had, they had sustained casualties in the millions. Now Britain was on the brink of another war with Germany. Hitler was taking slow steps to annex and acquisition countries by force if necessary. And the current conflict was over the German-speaking Sudetenland region of Czechoslovakia. Hitler promised that if they did not surrender his claim to this land, that they would invade on October 1st, 1938. Just two days before the deadline, Hitler agreed to meet with uh, Chamberlain, Italian leader Benito Mussolini, French Premier Edouard Daladere in Munich to discuss a diplomatic resolution to the crisis. The four leaders, without any input from Czechoslovakia, agreed to cede the Sudetenland to Hitler if he would agree to sign a non-aggression pact. Well, upon returning home, a jubilant crowd shouted out, Good old Neville! And they sang, For he's a jolly good fellow. Chamberlain addressed the adoring crowd with these ironic words, my good friends, this is the second time in our history that there has come back from Germany to Downing Street peace with honor. I believe 
It is peace for our time. He added, Now I recommend you to go home and sleep quietly in your beds. As Britain slept, the German army marched into Czechoslovakia in peaceful conquest of the Sudeten land. The bombers did not roar over London that night, but they would come. And in March of 1939, Hitler annexed the rest of Czechoslovakia, and shortly thereafter, he was crossing over into the border of Poland, and the prime minister again spoke to the nation, but this time to solemnly call for a British declaration of war against Germany, and this would launch World War II. Church, there can be no peace for our time. I just want you to know that clearly. You have an enemy who is set on destroying you. A policy of avoidance will never remove you from the line of fire. He's happy to sign a peace treaty with you. But trust me, there will be no peace. He won't keep it. Your only hope is to know your enemy's strategy and to remember what the Word of God says in 1 John 4.4. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So let's take a look at his strategies together. Look at that first strategy. He comes to us in disguise. Notice there again in verse 1, the serpent is more crafty. That word crafty means cunning, deceitful than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself. Well, how does he do it there in 2 Corinthians? As an angel of light. When Eve first sees the snake, she doesn't recoil. I mean, why should we, she? What's there to fear in paradise? It's not like Satan comes out uh, as a coiled snake. He doesn't have that rattle that makes you think that there's venom that's coming. No, the Hebrew word for snake actually gives you this idea of something bright and beautiful, attractive. That's how Satan comes. When he comes to you, he doesn't come with those bright warning colors that say, look out, I come with a bite. He's not roaring like a lion. He doesn't have a name tag that says, hi there, my name is Satan. Satan just kind of slides in to your life. He comes and seems like a comfortable companion. I mean, when you first meet him, you're probably not too intimidated at all. You might not even really know he's there. And he's fine with that. Here's another thing that I think we see in this text. It's uh, something to consider. Satan is comfortable attacking you when you are strong. Very comfortable. It makes no difference to him. In fact, your guard's down when your bills are paid and your job's going well and you're getting along with those co-workers and your marriage is strong and your kids are behaving and you have good fellowship at church and you go to the doctor's office and he says, I don't need to see you again for another year. In fact, why don't you go ahead and eat a couple of donuts? When everything is going well, buckle up. The enemy just might seize this opportunity. Strategy number two, he questions God's word. 
Look at the text, verses 1 to 3. He says to the woman, God, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman says to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now remember something about God's word. We saw this several weeks back. God's word is the glue of creation. His word is responsible for everything that Eve loves. It's responsible for the stars in the night sky that she sees, the gentle breezes that cool her in the midday, this wonderful marriage relationship that she has with Adam, the animals that surround her, the garden that nourishes her. It all comes from God's good word. And guess what? Satan knows that. He is fully aware of that fact. So that when he comes to you, he knows that his first step in destroying your life is to destroy the authority of the word of God in your mind's eye. Hadn't Robinson hit the nail on the head when he said, he is a religious devil. Notice the approach. Did God actually say no warning signs again? He doesn't say I'm here to tempt you. He says let's talk about religion. He doesn't come back and knock on the door of your soul and say, pardon me, I would just like a half hour of your time so I can damn you. He just says, are you understanding this Bible passage correctly? I mean, that sounds a little restricting, a little limiting. Dare I say that God's a little stingy? It can't mean that. And that's how The devil does combat. Now, how do you deal with a theological devil? How do you deal with a devil that listens closely to God's word? Notice I didn't say he obeys God's word. Uh, He hates obeying God's word, but he is perfectly content to listen to God's word. Well, you have to know God's word and you have to apply God's word. Look at verse 3 there. Eve knows God's word pretty well. She has a general idea of what he said. She's a little foggy on the details. It's kind of like uh, when we say things like, you know, I, I know that the Bible says something somewhere about this. Uh, I, I know it's in there. It, is it? Do you know? Satan does. He knows exactly what's in this word. He's poured over it. He's thought of a million ways that he can twist the contents of this word. Now look at the command and compare it with Eve's version. Uh, You'll notice what God actually says. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then here's Eve's version of it. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Not quite right, right? So notice a couple of things of what she did here. The first thing is that she omits a portion of God's command. She didn't talk about God's generous offer for them to be able to eat of every tree in the garden. You know, when we get to that place, when we start omitting the generosities of God, Satan has grabbed a foothold in your heart when 
Satan talks about God's law. He wants to focus on the prohibition. He doesn't want you to be thankful. He doesn't want you to be counting your blessings. He's going to grab that one little negative and he's going to grab hold of that and he's going to focus the entire conversation on that one aspect. Have you ever found yourself focusing on what you're missing? You ever had the blinders go up? You've got a good job happy family, you married that person that you always wanted to be married to, your kids are actually listening to you occasionally. But boy, you just can't quite shake that one thing, you know, that one thing that you feel like God's holding back. Let me just tell you, church, that has the handprints of the devil upon it. What else does she do? She adds to God's word, neither shall you touch it. I mean, it's like she's envisioning this God out there who is kind of looming over her shoulder and and if she was just to accidentally mess up and touch this tree, zap! You're gone, right? Well, Haddon Robinson once said, one of the things people do in defending God is to become more righteous than God. Become stricter than God. It is one of the problems that people often have on the religious rights. They not only look at God's commands, but they think that they would be holier if they went beyond the commands of God. And catch this, there is destruction in that. Finally, she downplays the judgment. God said, you will surely die Eve's version is you will die, uh, basically implying uh, maybe at some point a consequence might occur if I do this. So let's stop for a moment and consider two things, two important things. The first is this. If the devil comes around to dialogue, you are not his match. Don't negotiate with the devil. Don't negotiate with his representatives. Who are his representatives? Well, the Bible tells us it is anyone in this world system that does not know Jesus. So it could be a family member, a friend, anyone else. If you're dating someone that doesn't know Jesus, Satan is more powerful than you. He's smarter than you. He's more convincing than you are. And he will win if you negotiate with him. Jude 9 tells us, but even Michael... One of the strongest angels, in fact, the archangel Michael, did not dare accuse the devil of blasphemy, but simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, does this mean that we should be fearful and wondering if there's a devil around every corner? Does the Bible ever tell us to live by fear? No, it tells us to live by faith. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. But if I'm negotiating, I'm relying on me. Secondly, I want you to see that you'd better know the Bible well. You might think to yourself, well, I don't have time to read the Bible. I don't know the Bible that well. It's not really that big of a deal, so I'm just not going to dialogue with Satan. Well, (laughs) you might not have a choice in the matter. And as we will see, he is good at quoting the Bible. When you are tempted, it's not the foggy idea of what the Bible says that will deliver you, sort of knowing the truth. Ephesians six seventeen tells us that our weapon in this spiritual battle, and the only weapon that we're given, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So don't lay this sword down and close it up. Don't let this sword grow rusty in your mind's eye. 
Don't grab another type of weapon, like a, a good Christian book that you've been reading. You have to grab the pure, unadulterated word of God when you are uh, being faced with temptation. The idea here is that you need to know it, read it, memorize it, and be able to quote it when Satan comes knocking. And that's how we fight this type of temptation. Let's look at a third strategy. He tempts you with doubt and desire. Doubt and desire. Look there at verses four to six. The serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now the next step is always to deny the truth of God's word. Satan leads with a concerning question, but his ultimate destination is the denial of the word of God. He said, you will not surely die. The, the Hebrew literally reads, not you shall surely die. I mean, that is an exact quote of what God said. Satan knows the Bible. And he's saying, not in front of God's command. It is Satan, Satan's word against God's word here. To tempt you to sin, Satan must create a counter-narrative, a pseudo-narrative. He has to twist the truth. John 8.44, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. How do we know if Satan is lying to us when he's talking? If he's talking, he's lying. So what are his lies? Well, first, God doesn't really punish people for sin. This is the denial of the doctrine of uh, divine judgment. Eve says there's consequences. Satan throws back his head and laughs. Oh, <laughs> oh come on. You, you can't believe that. <laughs> you do. Mm. Come on. It's a bit of fruit. God's just trying to get your attention. He, he didn't actually mean it. Die, please. You're too smart for that. No one actually takes that part of God's word seriously. You don't believe that, do you? Why does Satan often start here? I mean, why doesn't he come to you and start with the deity of Christ, the existence of God, the resurrection? Well, if he can start here, if he can get you to believe that sin isn't a big deal, sooner or later, you're going to do it. And if you think that no one will know, no one will notice, no one will ever call your actions to account, well, you're eventually going to give in. The second lie, God is really not good. He essentially says to Eve, God is holding back on you. He knows what will happen. There is this inner God in you that's just waiting to be unleashed. God doesn't want that. He doesn't want to give you the power and knowledge. He wants to keep that for himself. There's ulterior motives. There's a hidden agenda here. What happens when you poison a part of the well? All the water is poisoned, right? So when you come to the place of doubting God's word because you really doubt God's goodness, 
the devil has already accomplished his work. And I've watched this play out over and over again. It's played out in my life. Uh, I've desired something that was contrary to the word of God, and it did its damning effect over my life. I don't know what it is for you. It could be all kinds of different things. It could be a dating relationship that you know is not godly. It could be an unethical shortcut that you find to save a dollar here and there. It's not a big deal, just a small blip in the integrity. It could be a flirtatious conversation with someone that's not your spouse or the desire to pull back from the fellowship of the gathering of the saints. One pastor rightly says, mark it down, when you start saying, I know God says, but... You are on the verge of making a terrible mistake. What happens? A dabble becomes a dip. A dip becomes a dive. A dive becomes a destiny. And somewhere along the way, our heart turns sour towards God and we begin to think, he never actually cared about me. I spent all of this time following him, denying myself. What for? Denying his word moves to denying His character, which moves to denying God himself. It's a downward spiral, a slippery slope. Look again at verse 6, the progression of temptation. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate now, there's a parallel in God's word in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 with this downward spiral. John says to us, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, there are certain human needs that Satan likes to take and work his work through. Physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs. Notice that Eve succumbs to these things. Good for food, delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. And it's the same thing that John the Apostle warns against. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. This downward spiral is almost complete. First, you talk to the devil. Second, you believe the devil. Third, you obey the devil. Fourth, and this is his ultimate purpose for you, you are enslaved by the devil. He doesn't want allies. He doesn't want friends. He wants slaves. Let me tell you, there is no 2018 updated playbook of Satan. He is still using the same old plays that he uses here in Genesis chapter 3. Why doesn't he move on? Well, it just keeps working for him. And this is where we see everything becoming unglued. Look at verses 6 and 7. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Did you see that? Adam was with her. He's standing there all along. And I think the text is trying to tell us that Adam is a knowing participant while Eve was deceived. 
In 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul tells us that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. It's almost like Adam standing there watching his beloved wife eat from the fruit to see what would happen to her. You thought about that? And it all just happens so quickly. I, I hear people say that all the time when they've caved to a temptation. Look at the verbs, saw, took, gave, ate, quick. Adam and Eve in this quick moment usher in the second most tragic day in human history. And, and Moses seems to express no shock here. I mean, the unthinkable, the, the terrible is described by a, a simple sequence of verbs so quick. So natural, so undramatic, but it was cosmic and eternal because if God's word is the glue of creation, if God's covenant is the glue of relationships, then this simple, natural, undramatic act just unglued everything. What are we to make of this? Everything that is wrong about this world goes back to this day. Are you trying to make sense of Parkland, Florida without Genesis 3? You can't. It's just moral senselessness if we don't understand Genesis chapter 3. Try to make sense of human trafficking or fatal diseases or infant mortality or human cruelty. Even make sense of those things that have happened to you in your life when someone broke your heart, when someone did something to you that was just wrong. Or try to make sense of those nights when you're sitting there in the quietness of your heart. There's nothing to prove. There's no one to defend yourself to. And you are sitting there in this silent moment. Just you. Just God. And you know that something is not right between the two of you. It all flows from this moment. This is the snowflake that begins the avalanche. The dissolving agent that unglued God's good order. Now some of us might say, well, but over a piece of fruit? I mean, isn't that a bit extreme? How could God? No, it's not over a piece of fruit. It's a denial of God's goodness and a breakdown of God's word, the glue of creation. And you can't dissolve the binding agent and expect for human goodness to remain in us. And God can turn the question back on us. Over a piece of fruit? Haven't you looked at everything I've done for you? In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, I create this wondrous universe, a wholesome creation, a wholeness in relationship, and if that wasn't enough, wouldn't I have given you more? And you denied me over a piece of fruit. We're all like Edmund in the Chronicles of Narnia who betrays God for some sweeties. You might say, but I didn't know. How could I know? I, I've been living my life. I didn't know God. I didn't know about his ways. I haven't looked at his Bible. Well, Roman tells us, friends, that in some way, we've all known and we've denied him. Paul makes it clear all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is not an Adam and Eve problem. It's not a those abstract bad people out there somewhere kind of problem. This is your problem. This is my problem. And how do we overcome a problem like this? Well, the Bible says we can't. Now I've said that this was the most or the second most tragic day in human history. 
But how could that be? What could be worse than something dissolving this good creation that God made? Well, the worst day, the most tragic day, was a day that we ironically call Good Friday. On that day, the innocent, sinless Son of God was shamefully treated, was oppressed and rejected, was flogged and spit upon, was ridiculed and jeered, was nailed to a rugged woman, a wooden cross. And to compound upon every wicked thing that we as a collective humanity had ever done since the fall, we took the Lord of glory, the sinless Son of God, and nailed him to a cross. That day, my friends, is the most tragic day in human history. And yet we call it good. Because the bloody death of the Son of God to bind back everything together, uh, this would take care of that sin problem. This would glue back what sin had unglued. We call this message good news. Through Christ, all of your sins can be forgiven. In a real sense, we are all like Adam and Eve. If we would have been there, we would have done the same thing. And we have the same choice before us every day. And we choose the same set of choices. Apart from the grace of God, you are capable of all kinds of evil. But through the cross of Christ, even your worst sins can be forgiven. That's good news. That's how we receive forgiveness. By acknowledging that I am a sinner and that Jesus is God's answer for your sins, it comes only by faith, nothing more, nothing less. So my question to you is, do you know Jesus? And if you don't know him, would you like to come to him? Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer?